So welcome to Two Crees in a Pod. We are in episode number six of season three, and today we are joined by Dr. Sherry Chisholm, who is the president at the University of Blue Quills. But before I even say that, I want to be respectful in pronouncing the name, uh, the new name for, and it's not new, it's been, it's been this name for a number of years. Um, and Sherry, maybe you want to teach me uh, how to pronounce it. I'll give it my best shot, and uh, and thank you for this respect. The name is so important to us, with uh, the acknowledgement of the languages of the two of the seven nations that we serve, including Nehiwak and Dene uh, and um, it's an acknowledgement of our ancestors. University Nuhelot Ine Thaeotsen Nistame Maganek Blue Quills. That's. That's a full, full mouth there. That's <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I want to actually give you the space, Sherry, just to introduce yourself to our listeners today. Wow, where to start? Sherry and Sigarson, Nui Huen no Kumpe Susquel, O Unisquapone, Cotinia, and Guani Sagita Nitatoske when. Uh, university no helot in um, So I'm Sherry. Uh, I live at Saddle Lake and love my work at Blue Quills. I've been there for uh, 22 and a half years, I think. And uh, I just keep being inspired by uh, the staff, the students, uh, the vision of our ancestors, the support of our communities, and uh, they keep my name on a parking spot, so I keep going. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, maybe if we want to, so just to let our listeners know, uh, Sherry also uh, was an instructor for both Amber and I when we did our degrees at the university there. So we know Sherry very well, and she's an amazing person. And one of the things is that maybe if we could share with our listeners kind of your journey with uh, Blue Quills. So I would say that my journey began when I was a child and um, I wasn't involved, but I was living uh, with my grandparents and our whole family lived with our grandparents at the time. And my grandmother was involved. Mm. Uh, she was a member of the original board and she had been a member of the satellite school board that was involved in the takeover in 1970. And so I know that that energy was around our house and um, then fast forward to 1984, I think, and I was set up to go to Nate to take a business diploma. Mm. My grandmother called me and said, hey, Blukos is offering a program. Do you want to go there? And, you know, without even a second thought, before I even talked to anybody at Blukos, I canceled my application at Nate. Mm. I had no idea if I was going to get accepted at Blukos. It was a Lakeland College program. And um, so so that was my first um direct involvement as a student and it's just sort of grown since that time i uh, went from there to the university of lethbridge and um, you know work stints in a few different places and then came back to blucos as a i actually did a, a semester of courses from athabasca university but i took them at blucos sometime in the 80s and then uh, I, I came back as an employee in 1998 and um, it started as uh, a, uh, a lecture to myself, because when I was at the University of Lethbridge, I had witnessed a couple of my colleagues make a presentation using Blackfoot knowledge as the beginning. 
and going from Blackfoot knowledge of the circle of life into the design of an organization. How does that inform organizational theory and design? And I was just, I was in tears and I was inspired. And so I began saying, we need to grow our programs from within our own knowledge. And, you know, I went off to Ottawa and worked and uh, came back to Saddle Lake and worked. And then I got an invitation to apply to Blue Coast. And it was a rather, it was a one-year position. And I thought, oh, so I've got this job that I really like at Saddle Lake with the Education Authority. And and it feels a little bit secure. And and so do I want to uh, let go of that to take this one-year position at Blue Coast? And it was to um, coordinate the development and delivery of the leadership and management program. And I said, self, you've been saying this for 10 years, that we need to grow our programs ourselves. It's time to walk the talk or shut up. Mm. So I took the leap 22 and a half years ago. And it's been the best experience of my life uh, to be involved in that, to carry. I feel like it's an inheritance, right? Um, Because of my grandmother's involvement, um, I will say, uh, you know, other people, they inherit money, we inherit work. And so I feel like this is my inheritance is, um, I I've inherited this work to do. And, and that what, that's what continues to drive me as well. I love that. And I, lo- I really appreciate that, that piece of inheritance. Um, and I know that Terry and I have had conversations about that as well, about, um, and maybe we haven't, I, I don't, I've never used that language, but when you said it, I, I, I that resonated with me, um, because I do feel like I've inherited some responsibility, um, not money responsibility <laughs> <laughs> kind of wish there was some cash that went along with that, but you know, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and, and, you know, Sherry, I, you know, in preparation for, our conversation today, I thought about a couple of things and I was talking to Terry before we called you and I vividly remember you teaching in our, uh, one of our master's uh, classes and it was a research class. And one of the things that you did that shifted, there was a lot of things you didn't said, Sherry, <laughs> that have shifted uh, the way I've thought or my worldview or maybe my understanding there was two things that have stayed with me. One being that you talked about truth and the way that you spoke about truth was about how there is no one truth. There's multiple truths. And the best way to understand each other is in ceremony. One of the other things that you said to me or to our group in in that research class, we were all preparing to do our research. And we all came in with this idea of what we wanted to research. And you drew this diagram on the board. And the diagram asked us, challenged us. Your research question, what system is it feeding? Is your your research question feeding a system of deficits? Because we don't need to do that anymore. That's been researched and researched and researched. And so... What is your what system is your research going to feed? Is it going to feed our deficits or is it going to feed your community in in a way that speaks about strengths and assets? And I remember that I'll never forget that because I changed my research question, not all of it, but most of it. 
And I remember looking at my research question and thinking, oh man, I, I do feel like I'm focusing on some deficits here. And, and uh, it changed. And so I want to thank you for that. Um, but I also want to, maybe if you can speak about that system of feeding, feeding systems of deficits in education specifically, whether that's in relation to our research or whether that's in relation to our work. Because I feel like sometimes we can get caught in those systems because of policies, because of legislation, legislation, et cetera, that we are feeding these systems of deficits and deficiencies. And so how, what kind of things would you want to say to our listeners to, you know, challenge ourselves to start feeding other systems of, of feeding our communities? You know, the, the first thought that comes to mind is that our natural um, processes and protocols of research come to us in ceremony. There is where we go to learn. Hmm. And in ceremony, uh, the, the focus and the intention is on celebrating. Celebrating our spiritual relationship with creation and with each other. Celebrating who we are, celebrating the gifts that Creator has offered to us uh, that keep us alive and then uh, all of the gifts, the gifts of food and the gifts of place and the gifts of spirit and the gifts of uh, emotion and uh, all of those things. And so um, with this great interruption that happened and and our, our separation from ceremony, most of us haven't had that experience from a young age. And we've been going to school. We've been going to their grade schools and their uh, universities and their colleges. And, and we've, some of us have been exposed to how they teach us about us, right? So the research that they've done about us, them telling our story. And what I realized is quite often we have been pathologized, right? We are the highest and the lowest in all of the statistical categories, whatever is the worst, right? And so I remember a colleague of mine when I was working at uh, Saddle Lake Education Authority, and she was working with the health um, center, and they had asked her to conduct a community survey. And she had a uh, probably about a 10-page survey. And she was... Um, tasked with going around the community and getting people to fill out the survey. And she'd been at it for a little while. She came into the education office and she said, uh, you know, we had our little visit, how are you doing? And, and she says, Sherry, can you do this survey for me? I said, yeah, sure, how's it going? Oh, nobody wants to do this survey. They all say we've been researched to death. And that was right around the time that I was starting my master's program. And, and so this question about research having been through an undergrad and, and reading what other people were saying in their research and then this comment from her. And so when I began doing my research for my master's program, I, I felt like that comment drove me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if, if our people are saying we've been researched to death, and that wasn't the first time I'd heard it, right? But if they're saying we've been researched to death, then it becomes our responsibility as researchers to research ourselves back to life. And so we have to um, begin to understand our own uh, 
protocols and, and philosophies and responsibilities around the transfer of knowledge, because that's really what research is. Mm-hmm. And so what responsibility do we have in our relationships with the people who are participating in our research and guiding our research? And what responsibility do we have to the people who have carried the knowledge this far? And what responsibility do we have to the people who will carry the knowledge after us? And I always see myself as standing in the middle um, those seven generations that went before and those seven generations that are going to come. And I'm holding the hand of both sides and I'm the conduit. And, and so I, I have to think about what is my research going to do to uh, ensure that we can transfer that knowledge um, through the generations. And so, um, you know, and, and that's, I think, where that comes from that. What are we doing with our research? Are we doing research the way others have done research about us? Not just the way we're doing it, but with the focus that they take, with the paradigm that they carry when they look at us. And so how can we use our research as a celebration of our existence, as a celebration of who we are and the deep, rich and sophisticated knowledge that our people carry, that comes to us from the land, that comes to us through the language and through ceremony, and that we share with one another through relationship. And, you know, I was thinking about this, and uh, every now and again, I've used the teepee as a model for um, trying to understand something. And I spend a lot of time trying to understand things and explain them to myself in different ways. And uh, so I was thinking about the teepee, and I thought, you know, um, I've participated in setting up a teepee, and, and I've witnessed a lot of it as well. And... Uh, so I, I know that there's different ways of doing it, but the ones that I've been involved in, they start with three poles and they tie them together and then they set those up and that becomes the frame. And so, um, several years ago at Blue Coals, when we were trying to define who we are, uh, we landed on land, language, ceremony, and relationship. And, and those became key words in how we present ourselves to the world and how we understand ourselves in the world. And, and so I was thinking about those uh, for today's conversation and thinking, okay, so the teepee poles, the three poles are land, language, and ceremony. And that rope that ties them together, that binds them, are the relationships between us and creation and between us as human beings. Mm-hmm. And from there, you add all of the other poles and you continue to bind them with those ropes to keep everything together, to keep family together, to keep community nation together, uh, you know, to keep the connections. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where that thinking came from. <clears throat> I love, uh, I love all of that. And that, that definitely sparks up a lot for me in the sense that like I'm in the middle of doing some research right now as well for my practicum. And I actually, it's interesting because I had my meeting yesterday and, and you know, I, I've, I have filled my requirements for my practicum. So we're signing off on it, but I'm not done. You know what I mean? And I guess right. in a sense of explaining that, that yes, you know, I could logistically sign off and, and I've done my practicum in the hours I've completed, but there's so much work that I need to continue doing and that I will continue doing in this research around how ceremony is healing. And it's so important for me. It's so important for me in my work, but even again, that responsibility of this inheritance that we've talked about of, you know, what are we doing for 
um, our communities and how are we celebrating? And I love that you said, you know, research ourselves back to life. I love that. Like that quote, that's going to be the title of this, this podcast. And again, because, you know, it is frustrating, you know, with a lot of the Western research practices that um, we see. And, you know, I've been so fortunate in my practicum to really do this from an Indigenous lens and, and be in ceremony in this process and how that transformed my work and the work that will come from it. So thank you for that, for sharing all of that. And, uh, and, and I think too that, um, and I wasn't articulating this as I was going through my academic journey, but I, I believe that we are all um, constantly on two paths. We are uh, uh, living the vision of our ancestors by pursuing an education and pursuing an academic education. And most of us have to go at some point in our lives through that, what I call a Euro-birthed uh, academic journey, because those institutions, the ideas of those institutions were birthed in Europe. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other things about language that um, I won't get into at this point, but uh, we've had to go through those processes. And there's the research that we know that we need to do for our people in that is governed by our people, that the methods and the methodologies and all of those academic terms. Um, and then there's the research that we need to do to get that credential. Mm -hmm. And their world, I think, is defined by very discrete pieces. It begins here and it ends here. Whereas I believe our world is continuous. It's mm -hmm. a continuous journey that we're on. And so a part of what we're doing might satisfy those requirements, but that doesn't mean we're finished. Mm -hmm. And that we're doing, we're going to continue doing that work because it's important work for us and for our people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and even the, um, the, the concept of research in the academy, I'm recalling a meeting that I was invited to at a large Euro-birthed institution <laughs> some years ago and uh, was invited actually to facilitate a circle because their facilitator was uh, unable at the last minute to be there. And so what I realized is this event was organized for the mostly graduate students from this institution who were preparing to do their research. And this was called the Aboriginal Research Initiative or something. So people who wanted to do their research connected to, and this is their language, Aboriginal people, um, were invited to this event. So uh, I don't remember what the question was that I used to start the circle, but we went around the circle and there's probably about 20 people in the room. And so I listened to these young people talk about what they wanted to do with their research. And most of them were non-Indigenous, uh, by far the majority, more than 90%, maybe all of them were, I don't recall. And most of them didn't really have any experience with mm -hmm. our people, with our communities, with our knowledge, with anything. They were just interested, right? We're one of the popular topics on the street these days and so um i listened to them talk and then i shared and i said you know i'm just about finished my doctoral work right now and in your world that means that i'm just about qualified to be considered a researcher i can apply for research grants i can do research from your that lens i said if you add it all up from the time i started grade school it probably amounts to about 20 years of my life that i have invested in 
learning through these systems. So don't you think that if you want to do research in our communities and with our people, that you should first give us about 20 years of your life, and then we'll determine if you're qualified to do research. Right. And, um, you know, and I still think that uh, it's a conversation that we have to keep having because we've had so much experience of people building their careers yes. uh, on our knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't see them again, right? They, they come in, they do their research, they write their book, uh, they get their promotion, they get their tenure, and we don't really see them again. And so the investment in relationship and the investment in knowing the foundational uh, uh, philosophy of who we are has to inform the research, I believe. Oh, Sherry, yeah. I, um, I was nodding along because there's so much, um, there's so many truths in that uh, for me. And, um, and I was thinking about that kind of helicopter research. Um, and, and then also that can happen in practice. Um, and as social workers, um, one of the things that we, we have experienced is that, uh, and we see this not just with social workers, but we also see this in other disciplines as well. Um, where folks come out to our communities to teach, to practice, and it looks good on a resume if they have quote unquote survived the res. Uh, and, and then they can go off and, and work pretty much anywhere because they have survived us. And I've heard this, I've heard this. And uh, in, in for many, many years, I've heard this. And then I, and then I also think around that that checks off a cultural competency box that if you have survived practice or a school teaching in a school on reserve, you kind of get to check off this box of competency. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what you just said completely contradicts all of that rhetoric around, Oh, you worked for a year on reserve, then you must really know how to work with those people. Right. Uh, and then there's folks like us who's, we are from community, work in community, live, breathe community, and still don't know everything. And, and, and other people and say, Hey, I'm having a hard time with this. Help me understand this, you know? And so I think that, um, that's a really good message, uh, for folks who might be tuning in today about, that relational piece and how uh, I remember uh, Terry and I have, have seen this and read this multiple times around how Leona says, we are not in relationship, we are relationship. And, and how, you know, when we're out in the field practicing, you don't practice for six weeks, five weeks, two years, four years, and check off that competency box and how that can get really complex out in the field. Indeed. And, you know, I, I think it's um, all wrapped up, of course, in that that history, those ideas um, that came to these lands with people from from other places. Um, and I remember um, probably 30 years ago, having a conversation in this house, actually, my grandparents house on the reserve. 
uh, with one of my relations and somehow the word race came up and, and we were talking about prejudice and, and racial discrimination and those kinds of things. And every now and again, my mind just goes bing and I have to go down the rabbit hole. And so this was the rabbit hole of that word race. And I thought about it uh, because one of my university instructors asked us to uh, do an etymology paper, which was understanding the origins of a word and what meaning does it really carry. And so I thought, what does race mean to people? When do we first encounter that word? And it's when we're children, right? I'll race you to the shed. Uh, there's my farming background. <laughs> Right. Uh, I'll race you to the end of the driveway, whatever. We're racing each other. So it, it carries, though, um, implications of winners and losers and superiority and inferiority. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I asked myself, what does it say about a culture that they are willing to use a word from their language that means winners and losers and superiority and inferiority and apply it to people? What does it say about that culture? Mm -hmm. And so I have had to quit using that word. And, and most of the time I'm successful every now and again, it slips out. But I, I, I can't um, use that word. And, and so in there is that sense that they have come here and believe from the very beginning that they are superior to us. Mm -hmm. And they continue to believe that. And you continue to see the evidence of it in the academy, in mm -hmm. uh, public services, in social contexts, on social media, you see it everywhere. We saw it yesterday, loud and clear. Right. You couldn't escape it, right? And so um, I, I look at that as the, the benevolence factor. And they came here to save us. And I feel like we barely survived the first 300 years of benevolence. How do we survive the next however long? Enough benevolence already. Um, you know, our people have always been uh, scholars, teachers, social workers, artists, diplomats, leaders, economists, architects, food sovereignists. Uh, we've always had that knowledge. And they separated us from that through several mechanisms. Uh, including starvation and Indian residential schools and social policies and 60 scoops and you know the list. And um, so we're just coming back to this and, and remembering a teaching that I received from um, late Rose Auger. Um, and I had asked her a question and she says, you know, our languages aren't lost. Our ceremonies are not lost. Our songs are not lost. Our ancestors have walked this trail. And they've left those things beside the trail for us. Now it's up to us whether or not we pick up those things. So we need to know that we have this knowledge. We have a very rich and sophisticated knowledge. And now that we're beginning to um, claim our space again and find our way to where this knowledge lives and celebrate it and, and grow it, um, we're... Uh, I, I don't know that we have to spend as much time worrying about what might be happening uh, amongst other ways of approaching research like this. We really need to invest our time and our effort and our energy in growing and 
So I, I give a gardening analogy again. Occasionally, I, I garden quite a bit. I'm usually a poor gardener because I'm so busy, but I still I, I don't give up. And you know, what will grow? What you give your attention to will yes. grow. If you take care of your weeds, they'll grow. If you take care of your crop, it will grow. Mm-hmm. And you will you will have a successful harvest, and it will feed you the next year. And from those seeds, you will feed yourself and your family the next year and the year. And, and so we just need to continue um, growing this. So uh, I, I also think, you know, and I want to acknowledge um, the two of you and so many of our relations that work in those Eurobirthed institutions. And I, I want to send you our energy to, to help you keep doing what you're doing uh, because our people need you there, right? Places like Blue Coast can't be everything to everybody. And our people are going to continue to uh, go as students and as scholars into these institutions. And so we need you there. But we also need you to, um, and, and, and I know that you're doing this, to advocate on uh, behalf of our own institutions, uh, advocate on behalf of our, um, our ability to do our own research our own way and to carry that uh, with us. And so, um, and, and, and to even use your uh, access in those systems to help them redirect the resources. There's a conversation that's been happening uh, for some years now about <clears throat> the authentication of knowledge and the accountability of knowledge. And so we know that our institutions are directly accountable to our uh, nations mm-hmm. because they own and govern us. Uh, and so how do we, you know, the, the academy has, um, uh, it's, it's like we're another frontier. It's like they've used up all these other uh, frontiers. And so it's like, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can do here in Indigenous knowledge and language. And so uh, we've seen a huge growth in that in the past 10 years, huge growth where you could barely find the Native Studies Department on campus. Uh, now they're everywhere. They're building lodges. They're building um, centers. And, and, and this is all good for our students there. But uh, it, it sort of signals that we're the flavor of the week, perhaps, or the flavor of the decade. And, um, but, and, and I'm not questioning our relations who work in those institutions. My comments are to the governance of those institutions, because I've heard so many of our people talk about how difficult it is, how you're fighting always against policies and procedures and attitudes and all of those things. And so um, how do we support our relations in those institutions by giving them a mechanism to um, uh, explore or or, uh, look at that authentication piece so that we can be there for you in your roles in your institutions to say this is um, this is how you can be accountable to our nations is through this mechanism of authentication, mm-hmm. and we need to start um, uh, exercising the ownership of our language and our knowledge and create those mechanisms because you know we've seen it happen for how many generations now where they take our knowledge into those uh, academies. And they repackage it. And by the time we get it back, it doesn't look like us. And um, I was involved in a research project uh, right after my undergrad. And I was going to elders and asking them, what does the next generation of um, management students need to know? 
And one of the elders talked to me and she says, you know, we send our young people to those institutions and they come back and they try to tell us how we have to change who we are and how we do things. That's not why we sent them there. Then we have to teach them again who we are and how we do things. And so we need to make sure that the next generation knows that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been fond of saying we need to teach our teachers what we want our children to know. And that was when I was working in the education system, K-12. And now that I'm in the um, post-secondary system, I think we need to teach the people who teach our teachers. Right? That's the journey that we're on. And so the same thing would apply to social work. We need to teach the people who are teaching our social workers so that we, um, we can, it's not just because it's good for us, it's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. It will, it has the potential to restore the balance to these relationships. And I know that there's a, probably a, a fair segment of the population in this country that thinks that things are good now. We've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and we're talking about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Aren't things good now? Which means that they have not lived our experience, that they don't know our day-to-day reality, if they're still able to say that. So, uh, no, things aren't good now. Things are better than they have been in some ways, but things are not mm-hmm. good yet. There's still so many truths to tell. There's still so much work to do. And I tried to explain reconciliation to myself, the word, the concept. And so I always look at um, what what other context have I encountered this word? And I thought, oh, I remember back when I was uh, in management school and uh, understanding reconciling your uh, bank account, right? And so when you're reconciling your checkbook, your bank account, whatever, you're looking at both sides of the ledger and you're identifying where the error is and you're correcting it. So if we're going to talk about reconciliation in these lands, we have to look at where did the error occur. And I don't think it's on our side of the ledger. So what can we do to help the people on the other side of the ledger make corrections? That is where I believe the real work lies. Seriously, I could sit here and we could, this could be the longest podcast ever. And it's to our listeners, we were talking prior to the recording and we had to stop Sherry stopped us and said, we should probably be recording this because <laughs> we can just get talking. And, and again, yeah. you know, it, there's, there's so much that comes up from that and, and there's so much truth in that. And I think that, you know, one of the more recent conversations that I had was with, um, with social work instructors in a sense of not feeling comfortable to talk about Indigenous history or culture um, to teach that in their classrooms and it blows my mind and again again it's this is frustrating because we know that you know the number of indigenous children in care that are dying we have indigenous children dying and yet you have social work professors who are uncomfortable to have these conversations in the classroom And then it sets up uncomfortable and unsafe spaces for people like Amber, who is the only Indigenous faculty member within her faculty or her school of social work. And again, like, man, there's, 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 (laughs) we could just go on and on. Um, But I want to, 
I want to ask you if there's any closing comments or anything that you feel our listeners um, should know before we wrap up. Can I add something before Sherry does that? Because Terry, what Sherry said about reconciliation and what you just said, Terry, I think that one of the things that came to my mind when both of you were talking was about this sense of responsibility. We've talked about inheriting responsibility and the responsibility that you've inherited, Sherry, you know, and the responsibilities that Terry and I have inherited uh, to do the work that we do. And I, I want to pose that to a question to our listeners is what is the responsibility you've inherited? Um, and, and, and how, and how are you going to do that reconciliation, that reconciling of, on, on which side of the ledger? The last thing I'll say is that when you are working with indigenous peoples, that it is not the responsibility of your racialized folks or the responsibility of your marginalized racialized folks to do that work. It is the responsibility of our settler folk to. Oh, you cut out there, Amber. Sorry, I'm just going to bring up race. Amber, I'm just going to get you to repeat that just because you. Did I cut out? You just cut out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I I think I I think that's just it is, is, you know, when Sherry talked about race, um, you know, and, and I thought about, you know, the last one there is the rotten egg, uh, which is something that we used to say when we were kids growing up on the farm. And, uh, and I think that, again, I think that there's a responsibility piece here. And I'm glad that you mm-hmm. said that, Sherry, because it reminds me of, again, who carries that? Uh, when you have folks within an institution, again, racialized, marginalized folks, who's carrying that responsibility? And who's, whose job is it to bring up race? Uh, because I'll tell you, we're exhausted. We're exhausted, bringing it up constantly. From an indigenous institution. And again, I looked at, um, so what other context have I encountered a word similar to that? And I remember in my studies hearing about anglicization. Okay, so what does that mean? It means to make English in form and character. So does the academy understand that to indigenize is to make the academy indigenous in form and character? And that's everything from governance, policies, curriculum, staffing, everything. I don't think they see it that way. At least the evidence isn't there. Uh, I, I also recall a conversation with a, a senior executive from uh, the uh, energy industry. And you know we were talking about all of these things. And, and it just suddenly occurred to me, and I asked him, I said, you know what I'm interested in? Because we were talking about trauma and the history of trauma and, and the effects of that on our people. I says, you know what I'm interested in? What is the trauma that your people have experienced in their relationship with us that makes it so hard for you to hear our stories? What trauma have you experienced that makes it so hard for you to talk about that history of our relationship? Mm-hmm. So I put that question out there as well. And I think, um, too, that, you know, we've always been seen as being here to serve the interests of the colonizer, of the academy, of whatever. And, you know, with our lands, with our resources, uh, with our knowledges, we've been here to serve. 
And uh, I think uh, it's time to say, no, we're not here to serve you. We can help. But, you know, as you say, Amber, it, it's not only our job. And then uh, the, the question that you uh, asked, uh, I, I was, when you were talking about being exhausted in the academy, and I remember 30 and more years ago, hearing Winona LeDuc talk, and, you know, I'm, I'm just so amazed by her journey. Uh, it is so diverse. She covers so much territory, and she is relentless, and she doesn't give up. But I remember her talking about the lonely only club that quite often were the only indigenous person in the classroom, in the office, wherever it is. And I want to say to people, we're not the lonely only club anymore. Look around, see how many of us there are, connect with each other, help one another. And let's especially um, put our energies together to do what we know based on you know, what we've inherited from our ancestors needs to be done. Let's put our focus on that. And, you know, sometimes you can fight against something. And sometimes you can do what you need to do and leave that behind. And maybe we need to do both things. But let's not give all of our energy to fighting against things. Let's put more of our energy into doing things for us. I wouldn't even call it a fight. It's it's um, it's something that we need to do for us, regardless of what they're doing out there. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sherry. I uh, we really appreciate having you on two Crees in a pod. Uh, again, like I said, we can we can talk forever. Um, and definitely appreciate all the truth that you shared with us and our listeners today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Like I said, it was a bucket list thing. <laughs> Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Natani means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifested destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids, can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard, so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish, lightning in our veins Hear it in a language when they are kitchen for the rain I am product of people that persevere, persecution Paint me so creator sees me, if I go out shooting Experience our pain, when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the wolves in the forest Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptation? Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said Two Crees in a Pod.